The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want to start by just reading a short passage you're very familiar with. It's out of uh, Isaiah 49. Listen to this. But Zion said, as God's people said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And God responds, can a woman forget her nursing child? In other words, God is using this as the example of the greatest level and faithfulness of love. A, a mother who is nursing her child, he says, and have, can, they, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will never forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. He's using Jerusalem as a picture of his people, and that's why he says, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your, your builders hurry. Your destroyers and devastators will depart from you. The, uh, when, he, when this was said, when this prophecy was given, Jerusalem was in ruins, in a sense, because of uh, the enemies of Israel coming in and destroying them and taking them off into bondage. What I want to do this morning is look at First Thessalonians, uh, what you heard read this morning, First Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. In First Thessalonians chapter 2, you have Paul uh, defending his leadership style and his leadership of the church at Thessalonica. If you go back and read the account in Acts, Paul was at Thessalonica for three, three Sabbaths, so we understand he was there for three weeks. And there were so many people saved that they, it, they became a church. And then he was driven out of town. And after he left, he had a lot of enemies who were trying to uh, tell the people who had believed his message and become a follower of Jesus that Paul was a deceiver and dishonest and that he was simply trying to take advantage of them. And so Paul begins to defend his leadership style by simply reminding them of what he did among them when he came there. And the church was established, and he established leaders there and all that. And so that's what you heard read this morning in 1 Thessalonians 2, is Paul's defense. And the amazing thing that he does is he uses mothers and even fathers as examples of the kind of leadership that he gave them. In other words, uh, what we're told in this book is there's three important things for someone to be a leader in the kingdom of God on any level. And the two primary spheres of uh, leadership in the kingdom of God is in churches and in families. And so what Paul is doing is he is explaining to them his motivation. And he keeps alluding to the sphere in which they would be most familiar with was life in their families. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, some people, some people accuse Paul of being a chauvinist because of some statements like this. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, I want younger widows. In other words, women who've been widowed at a very young age, he says, I want them to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Keep house? What did you do? He wants you to vacuum and dust? Is that what he's talking about? This word, uh, keep house, is a poor translation of a, of a word that means, in fact, it sounds like this, oika despotel, 
we get a word despot from the last part of it and house from the first part. The idea is that he wants them to manage their homes. All of us men who have wives know that, that the most important things going on in our family is our wives managing the home. It's actually a place you want to come home to. The first person who ever talked to me about the gospel was my mother. I have my earliest memories are her talking to me about Christ. The earliest memories I have, I remember before I even went to kindergarten, so I had to be like four years old, her teaching me how to make a bed. She was oika despote too. And uh, she was teaching me how to make my bed at four years old. And she taught me a song. I still remember the song, Oh, How I Love Jesus Because He First Loved Me. And she used that as an opportunity to explain to me, a little toe-headed kid, that Jesus loved me first because he came to rescue me, to save me, to save me from the day of judgment. And so all my life growing up, she was the primary one who, who told, talked to me about Christ and who modeled what it was to follow Jesus. She modeled what it was to follow Jesus. That's how I learned how to follow Jesus, was simply watching her. And um, in this context, I think it's important that Paul, as he's defending his own leadership in the church of Jesus Christ, he points to both fathers and mothers as examples of the kind of the style of leadership that he exercised among God's people. Um, One of the things he says in this book is the key to leadership in the kingdom of God is this. It's the word of God. Back in chapter one, he says, uh, the gospel didn't come to you in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit with much full conviction. That's the second thing, the Holy Spirit. The word of God, the Holy Spirit, and the third thing, which is indispensable, is you have to love the people that God has given you as a leader to. This is probably the hardest part about being a pastor uh, for guys is, is to love the people that God has set them in place to lead. Because leadership can be defined a lot of different ways. I love uh, Chuck Swindoll's definition. He has a way with words. He said, he said that leadership is inspiring influence. Inspiring influence. It's an influence that is inspiring. In other words, it, it does something to the heart of those who are led. And he goes on to say, those who lead others with the greatest degree of success are able to light the spark that prompts others toward following Christ. It's hard work, but it's worth it, he says. I believe Chuck. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. He's called us to lead by example and, and lead by, through the word of God, in the power of the spirit of God, and by loving those whom we lead. Now, if anybody knows that well, it's moms. They know that it's loving their children that's, that's the key to being the leader that God has called them to be. Now, uh, I have no problem whatsoever thinking of my wife as a leader in our home. Um, I tell her what to do but uh, <laughs> at times, but... I recognize that she has a certain kind of wisdom that I don't have. I've noticed something. Our children, we had three children, and I knew they always, I always knew they loved her more than they loved me. But now that I have grandkids and a couple of great, three great grandkids, I can tell you they all love her more than they love me. 
In fact, they put up with me because they love her. They actually come around because she manifests love towards them in the simplest kinds of ways. I actually wanted to put a lock on the refrigerator. But she says, no, I don't want them ever to feel like they're not welcome here and they're not welcome to whatever we have that they need. And I... (laughs) And that... Don't mess with my motorcycle. But... But... It's true, isn't it? See, that's the upside-down kingdom. The upside-down kingdom is the greatest of all became the servant of all. The one who was high and above all things came down and took on our humanity in order to serve us and to love us by, by delivering us from our fallenness and alienation from God. And so what Paul's doing here in... 1 Thessalonians 2, the first 12 verses, is he's defending his leadership. And he says some really important things. All of it is important for leadership, but I think especially what I want you to catch, mothers, is that Paul highly regarded what God set you and your family for. And um, let me just work through this passage. If you'll turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, This is what Paul says. Let me read it again. It won't hurt you to hear it again. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, something happened because Paul came to Thessalonica. If you go back and read uh, the, the account of that in the book of Acts, in Acts 16 and 17, you'll have an account of Paul suffering like at Philippi. Remember, he was stoned outside the city punished, not stoned in the sense of high. He was stoned by stones, rocks they threw at him. And some believe he actually died and God had to raise him from the dead. But uh, it was not in Philippi that that happened, but it happened in another city. And then in Philippi, he was thrown into jail. And you remember, he was thrown into jail for a particular purpose. He was going through a difficulty because God wanted to use him to bear witness to a man who was the jailer of the jail at Philippi. Philippi. That may be the reason that you're having the problem you're going through now. Maybe because God has a divine appointment for you. And he's going to use you in a significant way. Because that's what happened there. Then he goes to Thessalonica. Well, he's been beat up, thrown in jail. Uh, been, he's gone through all kinds of stuff in, in trying to preach the gospel as he goes west in the Roman Empire. And yet he comes to Thessalonica. And then the leadership at the synagogue, because that's where he would always go. He would go to the synagogue. He had standing among the Jews. He had been a teacher of the Jews, and so he would go there. But then he would preach the gospel of Christ, and it would always get him in trouble. And sure enough, it got him in trouble here. He was there three weeks, and then they drove him out of town. And so he begins to talk to them about, he says, it wasn't in vain. It produced something wonderful. It produced a a group of believers, we don't know how many, but a group of believers that became a local church. He goes on in verse two, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much opposition. 
as he preached the gospel to them, there was all kinds of opposition. They tried to shut him up, but he wouldn't shut up because he loved these people. And so he proclaimed the gospel to them. And uh, he, was, he was willing to go through the difficulty in order to get the gospel message to them. And he says, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. That is, we weren't trying to deceive you in order to take advantage of you, as those who were accusing him were accusing him of that. He said, but just as, you, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted entrusted with the gospel. Guess what the word entrusted is? It's the word believe, trust, believe. It's the same word we use for you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But here it's God entrusting Paul with something. What did he entrust him with? The gospel. What has he entrusted you believers with? The gospel, the spirit, all that he's blessed you with, a spiritual gift, He's entrusted you with that. And so Paul took this in, being entrusted with the gospel, something that brought great responsibility to his life. And so we speak, he says. Even though there was opposition, we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. What I wanted to point on this little section here is that godly leaders have to avoid certain things. And he mentions four here. Let me just tell you what they are. The first is deception. You can't be a leader in the kingdom of God and use deception as one of your tools. There has to be honesty. No deception. And he's talking about the way that he appealed to them. He wasn't like somebody who snuck up on them and fooled them into believing something that wasn't really true. No deception. Secondly, no flattery. Verse 4. He didn't flatter them. He wasn't a people pleaser. He was a God pleaser. He loved people, but he wasn't a people pleaser. He wasn't trying to take advantage of them. So he told them the truth. And he says in Galatians 1, you heard, you've heard this in, as Ryan's been going through Galatians. Paul says, for I am, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. In other words, I, am, I have to be only concerned with what Jesus thinks about what I'm doing, not what people think. And, and this is something that I, I love in, in mothers of children <laughs> because I couldn't stand... To, for my kids to, uh, I, I couldn't stand to be a mother because being able to discipline your children and do what you need to do with your children and, and then they act like they totally despise you because of that, I couldn't take that. I would want to lavish this with something so that they would just think I was the greatest guy in the world instead of holding their foot to the fire and say, what well, my dad used to say to me when he spanked me, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. <laughs> I think that must be a real common saying, but it's really true, isn't it? When you love your children and you have to, uh, instead of flattering them, you have to tell them the truth for their good and their welfare and for the glory of God. And then in verse five, he says he, he didn't use any greed. There was no greed in his motivation. He wasn't trying to get something from them. 
Paul was really amazing. You know, he would go into a city and he would work for a living in that city to support himself. And then when the team came, when his team came, he would support them. (laughs) That's nuts, isn't it? Instead of saying, okay, you guys need to go to work and support me so I can go out and preach the gospel, he actually would support them. That was a very common thing that happened with him. And the reason was he, ne- he always wanted to be sure that they were clear about the fact that he wasn't serving them out of greed for what they had. He wasn't wanting what they had. He wanted them. He wanted their hearts. He wanted them to come to believe the gospel. Uh, greed is really something the Bible talks a lot about, greed, and how it's idolatry. Uh, how do we fight greed? Well, somebody says you fight it with frugality. Frugality. You know what frugality means? Frugal. You know what a frugal person is? We usually think of them as being stingy, but actually it's just the opposite of extravagance. I don't need for God to build me a big mansion. I just need to trust him enough to meet my needs. And as you can tell, I eat well. And he always supplies. I've been amazed. I went in the ministry in 1980 full-time, and I can remember being scared to death that I would that we would be broke all the time and we'd never be able to make it. And from 1980 to the present day, God has been faithful. He has met my needs far abundantly above anything I could ask or think. And that's how he is. He provides for us. So frugality just means understanding that I want to use the resource that God's given me for his glory and not for my, just my enjoyment. <laughs> And then he says the fourth thing that he mentions that he did not have was arrogance. You know, Paul knew that he could pull rank on the Thessalonians. He was was an apostle. He could demand certain things of them. He was was an apostle born out of due season. He wasn't one of the original apostles, but he was a true apostle sent by Christ. He had status within the movement of Christianity. People knew him by name. He could have used his position as an apostle to make demands on them. But he didn't do it because he didn't want to. He had real authority, but he didn't want to abuse his authority because he wanted to bear witness to them. He wanted to have a witness to them that would penetrate the heart. Now, he refused to seek from men influence, that is power and money and glory. He didn't have a problem taking an offering to meet the needs of the saints back in Jerusalem. Remember in Judea when they were in a drought and he went out and took up an offering for them. But he, he never took up an offering for himself. It's true, he, people did support him, but he didn't ask. He didn't uh, use his influence to ask for that. Then in verses 7 through 11 is where we run into two things. One is uh, he compares himself to a his leadership style to that of a mother, a nursing mother. Look at verse 7. He says, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, quite literally our souls. We give of ourselves, our deepest feelings towards you. Because you had become very dear to us. You had become very dear to us. 
Now, you've got to understand that Paul's writing them because he's been forced to leave. He's been driven out of the city. He ends up down in Athens alone. He sends back some messengers to see how they're doing. But his heart's breaking about them because they'd only been Christians for three weeks when he left. And so he's concerned about what's happened to them. And he's writing this letter to them and sending messengers to them so that, well, actually, he's writing this letter after the messengers came back and told him what was going on, that they were following Christ. They continued to be faithful to Christ, and his heart was encouraged. But here, in verse 7, he says, like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. The primary uh, character quality of a nursing mother, a mother who has children and cares for them, is selflessness. Deeply committed to meeting the basic needs of her children. Judy and I went to a restaurant the other day for breakfast and um, there was where we sat next to our ta- the table next to us. There was a young lady there. Our mom had three had two children with her. It turns out we had a conversation. She had a third child who was about six years old, and she had just started school. But she had a baby, an infant, and then she had a little three or four year old. I don't know. And so as we walk up, she's she's feeding the baby. The food's already been put on the table, but they haven't started eating the food on the table. But she's feeding the infant. And she completes that. She's all covered up. She completed that. And then she cut all the food up for her little three or four-year-old. And she's talking to her sweetly about how she needs to eat and this is how to do it and so forth. And then she eats her breakfast. In the midst of that, as she's doing this, and I just couldn't get over her concern for them and the way she talked to the little girl. It was encouraging her and watching the baby and making sure he was okay or she. I don't know what she was. And uh, I said to her, you know what? Based upon your experience, you could become the head of a major corporation. <laughs> and she kind of chuckled. She's like, what do you mean? I said, well, the way that you are meeting the needs of these children, the way that you're managing them, it was amazing to me. I, you guys may be snickering, but I'll tell you what. Volunteer, and I'll make sure somebody can give you three little children to take out to a restaurant and see how you do. But she did a wonderful job. And that's because when Paul is comparing his love for them and his sensitivity to their needs in verse 7, and then in verse 8, his affection for them and his authenticity as he deals with them, he's comparing himself to a nursing mother tenderly caring for her children. She can, you see, a mother like that can, can sense the needs of her children like nobody else can. And he says, that's, that's leadership in the kingdom of God on every level. There has to be this kind of heart for people. You have to love the people that God has placed you in their lives to serve them. Back in, earlier in this book, he says, just as you know what kind of men we became while we were with you for your sake. Now, what he was talking about was the they could see what the Spirit was doing in their lives. The people could see what the Spirit was doing in Paul's life and his companion's life as he brought the gospel to them. They were transformed by the Spirit as they did ministry to the people that God had led them to. So they saw these characteristics. They saw his sensitivity, his love for them. And this is what leadership has to cultivate, this kind of selfless, sensitive, and tender care for those they lead. 
there's a there's a there's a group called the Six Four Fellowship. It stands for Acts Six Four, and Acts Six Four is where the apostles said it's not good for us to abandon the the ministry of the word and prayer in order to wait on tables. That was when there was a crisis about feeding the widows. Remember in the early church. But Paul says, we have the ministry of the word and prayer. Not just the word, but the word and prayer. We're actually supposed to be calling your name before the Father. We're actually supposed to be praying for you. And that's what we long to do. And that is a picture of a mom who really cares for her children. She has affection for them, and that's what he says in verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very own souls. Our souls. We let, we let ourselves be touched deeply by you and by your needs. That's what he's saying. We had an affection for you. It's not cool and distant. Uh, they didn't, you know... I understand, I'm not complaining about the fact that today we can use certain titles to describe ourselves, like pastor or whatever, but that wasn't the way it was in the New Testament. Those weren't titles, those were functions. I remember my son went to a camp one time, he was a young teenager, he went to this camp, and the guy that was doing the camp demanded that they call him pastor whatever it was, Pastor Al or something, I don't know what his name was, but... His wife was there helping him, and he made her call him Pastor Al as well. That's absurdity. You see, because Paul, what Paul wanted them to know was that he was committed to them, that he was willing to give them his soul, his deepest affections. And then the next thing was, was his authenticity is like a mother, a nursing mother taking care of her children. He says the last part of verse 8 and down through verse 10. He says, uh, you are witnesses and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Well, what he's saying is, is a pastor's got to be like a, as loving and affectionate as a mother and as encouraging and imploring as a father, a leader in the kingdom of God. I think what I want to just emphasize is the fact that you moms are leaders in the kingdom of God because you're believers. The gospel's transformed your life and your motherhood. You're a spiritual leader in a real sense. That's what he's called you to be, an example of the love of Christ. And what will happen is your children will rise up and call you blessed. They will, they will tell people about how God has used you in their lives. And that's the same thing is true with the fathers. And this is what he says finally in verse 11, as a father exhorting, encouraging, and imploring his children. He affirms them. He affirms his children. Um, you probably have to learn it from your wife how to do that, by the way. If you want to learn how to affirm your children, you probably need to listen to her a little bit as she talks to your children. But affirmation is something that we're called to. Uh, we must have the tenderness of a mother, but also the tenacity of a father to appeal to our children. 
Paul's pattern, by the way, is always, we, he, de- he describes himself like a mother when he's emphasizing tenderness and affection. And he compares himself to a father when he's emphasizing teaching and encouragement. To teach them and to encourage them to be on this path of following Christ. And you may say, what, what am I supposed to teach them? Well, I want to start with this. Uh, remember when Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, the greatest is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. How about you start with that, fathers? You start instructing your children to love God, and you show them how. This is, this is the main thing about discipleship. It's not just that you tell people to know something. You show them how to fulfill that. To love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. My dad didn't get saved till I was a young teenager. But then he did show me what it was like to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and love his neighbors himself. And that's what we're called to do. So if you want to know what you're supposed to instructing your children, you don't have to take a Greek class or a Hebrew class. You can simply start showing them and telling them, giving them an example to follow about loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbors yourself, love people. Somebody, I just read the other other day uh, about somebody in print said that uh, the church no longer is an example considered by people outside of it. The church is no longer considered to be an example of loving people. They think of us as only judging people. Well, they're wrong. Because when you got saved and you received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit began to produce in your heart a love for God and a love for people. Now, when a father really loves his children, he tells them things hard to hear. And sometimes they think that he's being too hard on them. But the fact is, he's loving them the way he ought to love them. Part of the father's role is continue to encourage and affirm his child through his task no matter what, enthusiastic support. Yes, you can. God wants to be real to you. You know, we talk about, I, I've grown up in, I've been in several different circles of churches over the, my lifetime, and some churches emphasize the way they talk about the Christian life is all experience. It's what I feel and what I experience. Other groups, it's all what you know. And so if you get these 150 or 150,000 facts, you will be a very mature Christian. The fact is both those things are necessary, isn't it? Aren't they? I have to know the truth, but I also have to experience the truth. I have to experience the truth of a relationship with Christ. I have to experience the reality of Christ actually affecting my hearts, touching my life. And so you don't have to be afraid when somebody says, boy, I really felt the Lord this week. You don't, that doesn't have to give you hives. It's okay. Now, if somebody just turns into an emotional wreck and uh, they can't even, they, they don't want to hear any, any truth in the word of God, then yeah, be concerned. But this is a very real experience, right, that we have, Christ living in us, the Spirit living in us, the Father living in us. All three of those things are said in Scripture. 
that God has taken up residence in your life, the Son has taken up residence in your life, and the Spirit has taken up residence in your life. And we've been instructed on how to relate to Him in a personal way. That I enter into his, the Father's presence, I abide in Christ, I trust Him and I rely upon Him. And I walk in the Spirit. I live my life depending upon the Holy Spirit. Now, it's great to learn a lot of good truth from the Word of God. It will make a big difference in your life. It's helpful. But it's not an end in itself. The end is coming to know Christ, really know Him. And it's necessary to know some things about Him in order to know Him. When we preach the gospel, we preach the facts of the gospel. Christ died for your sins. He was buried and He rose again. But there has to be a trust in this Christ who died and was buried and rose again. And when you trust him, it's a personal experience. You're putting your your trust in a person who's done this for you. And you'll discover that the, the struggles in the Christian life often are my lack of faith in God's, my relationship with God and his love for me. Does he really love me? Does he really care for me? And then you run on to this glorious truth. Romans 5, 8 says, God is continually recommending his love to you in that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Of course. And I want to experience the reality of his love for me. And then finally, the the godly leader has a clear objective. And so that would include mothers in home, pastors in a church, leaders on every level. There's a goal to it, and it's found in verse 12. Look at verse 12. So that you may walk, you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his, king, his own kingdom and glory. The goal is to see the walk change. Now, the walk isn't just knowing stuff. The walk is my lifestyle in, in a faithful response to the truth that I've come to understand about God and that I have come to feel in my heart and my soul. And so he's, he calls us. Paul had a, he led, he, what he did, he wanted them to know, led to benefit of others, not himself. He was willing to sacrifice himself, his very life, in order to do good to those to whom he served. He wasn't out to exalt himself or to use them to enhance or to fulfill his own plans. He wanted to serve them. He loved them. So here's the objective of all Christian leadership. Whether you're a mom, a dad, a pastor, a leader, we, are, we have been placed in the kingdom of God to influence others in this world. Otherwise, he would have just taken you home when he saved you. But he wants to use you as an instrument in his hands. And so the goal is this. The objective is to lead people so that they walk worthy of the one who called them into his kingdom and glory to learn how to walk with him. Are you serious about your role as a Christian parent or a, or a Christian functioning in the body of Christ that God is going to, is, has already placed you in some sense of being a leader in the sense of being an example to others in the way you walk, the way you live your Christian life. And so Paul says, that's my whole motivation in being engaged in leadership. Uh, I, I think, because this is Mother's Day, when I think about the opportunity 
that mothers have to influence human beings, their own little children, their own children. The, the incredible opportunity to influence their lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ as it passes through you. It's my responsibility to be blessed to experience, to take in the blessings of God so that I can pour them out. Like Jesus said in John seven thirty seven, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. If you believe in me, if you trust me, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Out of your innermost being. That is, that's what's going to pour into the lives of others. So the most important thing for me to do as a leader, as a father, or a leader on any level in the church, is for me to drink deeply from this well and that the blessings, the grace of Christ would flow out of me into the lives of other people. Verses 1 through 5. And in that context, he says, uh, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through whom we have gained entrance into the grace of God. Now, the grace of God is a sphere. He's picturing it there as a sphere of life. We're ensphered in grace. And in grace, every part of God's dealings in your life is a manifestation of grace. I can imagine, I can only imagine this, but I can imagine that being a mother could get really tough. Amen? Amen. It, it could really get difficult. And yet, it is a wonderful calling because you have an opportunity to pour out the grace of God into the lives of children that God gives you. And if you have no children of your own, he's going to put people in your life that you'll be able to pour out his grace into their lives. And because of the way that God has made us and created us and shaped us, we have this glorious blessing of being a conduit through which the grace flows into other people's lives. And that's what he's called us to. So I, I want to pray God's blessing on you moms today especially, and, you, and your fathers as well. I've had about a dozen guys over the years tell me that he's, they, they've said things like this. Well, it's obvious how you do in the church. On Mother's Day, you build them up, and on Father's Day, you rip us apart and beat us up about what we're not doing right. So I just want to encourage you fathers as well, uh, as Paul does. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you would choose to use us in the kingdom of God through whom you would pour grace into people's lives. I thank you for these mothers. I thank you, Father, for their opportunity that you've given them to love their children, to manifest the love of Christ to them to be an example to them. I pray that you would fill them with hope. Even those who don't know you, know you, I pray that you would fill them with hope that simply turning to you and receiving life from you would empower them to give away what they could never produce in themselves. I just pray, bless the moms in our church. I pray, use them, produce glorious fruit through them, Father, we pray. We, we thank you today that the, that the gospel that we believe and the gospel culture that we want to manifest has been given to us freely and we can freely give it away because the, it, we never run out. We thank you, Father. It's inexhaustible what you have given us. And so we pray that, if I pray for the moms, that they would see the glory of pouring themselves out 
because you will continue to fill them up. Thank you for the great influence they've had on so many lives. We are grateful and we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.